me share a story I read this week. It said, The kingdom of heaven is like a physician who became wealthy, having discovered the cure for a fatal disease. After some time, when he knew he would not be living much longer, he decided to give his wealth to people in real need. One day he went out on the street and found a man lying on the sidewalk, hungry, hopeless, and almost naked. The doctor took pity on him and extended to him a bank card. And he said, take this card. It gives you access to the bank with a, to a bank account with a million dollars. You may take withdrawals every day for all your needs and help others as much as you can. The outcast looked at the card and he looked at the physician. He looked at the card again. He couldn't believe anything the man said. Could it be, he thought, that this stranger has gone out of his mind? <clears throat> Angrily, he grabbed the card, threw it away, and spat on his would-be benefactor and returned to his sidewalk bed. The doctor continued his search. He found a poor woman in an equally bad situation. He made the same offer to her, and she accepted the card happily, but did not go to the bank immediately. As the day dragged on, she got distracted by her problems and lost the card, the very card that would have solved her problems, and she made no attempt to find the doctor. Not long after that, the physician found another man in desperate need and offered him the same deal. The man took the card thankfully and was careful to keep it with him at all times. Wherever he went, he proudly showed his bank card and spoke enthusiastically about the immense amount of money he had in his account. I'm rich, he would say, and have need of nothing. But he was still dressed in rags, still terribly sick, still dirty, disheveled, and hungry, dependent on handouts. Whenever he said he was rich, no one would believe him because he lived just as he did before accepting the bank card. <clears throat> Another woman caught the famous physician's eye. She was in the greatest need of all, death, deathly sick, thin, and weak. The rich man made the same offer to her. Take this card. It represents all that you need and more. You make withdrawals every day for all your needs and for the needs of those around you. She took the card in her trembling hands and saw her very own name on it. She thanked the rich man and went straight away to the bank. She walked up to the teller, presented the card, and dared to ask for a hundred dollars. She could not yet fully understand the vast riches at her disposal. The teller was a friend of the wealthy doctor and was aware of his offers. She could see the woman's true distress and kindly responded. Is that all you need? You'll earn more in interest in the time it takes me to count it out than what you've asked for. The woman, in total disbelief, then asked for what she thought was a staggering sum, five thousand dollars. The woman rented a small apartment bought food and new clothes, took badly needed bath, and went to the rich physician for healing of her sickness as well as advice on how to prevent this reoccurrence. The woman began to live as much like a rich person as she knew how and sought to imitate the only wealthy person with whom she was acquainted, the physician. Following the instructions given her, the woman went back to the bank every day to make withdrawals and shared her wealth with others in need. Now, the story illustrates for us a measure of how those who follow Jesus should live. We should live like Jesus. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he consistently did the same sorts of things over and over again. When you read through the Gospels, you would look at all that Jesus did, you would find they fall into probably three broad categories. He, he'd teach and he would preach. Jesus was a master, teacher, preacher. Every time a crowd gathered around Jesus, he would take that opportunity to tell them what the kingdom of God was like, what it meant to follow him, and how they ought to live for him and what God was like. Jesus always took advantage of every opportunity he was given to try to help someone with teaching. Jesus also spent time with those that society rejected. All kinds of people came to hear Jesus teach and to see what he might do. But Jesus made an intentional effort to reach out to those that had been cast off by society at large. This was especially true if they'd been cast off by the religious world. 
As far as the religious world was concerned, there were certain classes of people that were too far gone that they could not be saved. There were certain sinners that had so badly corrupted themselves that God no longer cared about them and God would have nothing to do with them. It wasn't that they didn't believe it was unlikely these people would change. They believed that even if they came to God and asked for His help, God would tell them no. That He did not want anything to do with them any longer. The religious leaders despised these people to such an extent that they would not allow their clothes to touch these people. And if they did, they would burn them for fear that it would make them unclean. If these were the very people that Jesus went out of His way, out of his way to reach and to spend time with. He ate with them, implying acceptance of them. He cared about them and told them that God loved them. He told them that they could be forgiven of their sins and he didn't care what the religious leaders thought about it. He made a point to go out of his way and to spend time with them. And Jesus also helped the needy. The ways that Jesus helped the needy are many. He healed their sickness. He raised their dead. He fed them. He cast demons out of them and their loved ones and just generally did whatever he could to help. Now these activities these categories of activities mark the consistent way that Jesus lived his life. There are two things, as I thought about that this week, that stood out to me. One is how others-centered Jesus was. Right? Jesus focused his life on others. He, he, he did just about everything he did to help others. I mean, think about it. Why did he gather a crowd and teach? It's because he had information they needed. They needed to know what the kingdom of God was like. They needed to know how to be saved. They needed to know that God loved them and would forgive them. He spent time with those society rejected because they needed him. They needed to know that it was okay that God would forgive them. They needed to know that they were not too far gone for God to save and to forgive. He, he helped the needy. Because he had the ability to help them. Jesus just constantly focused on others. But the other thing is how much he cared about others. I mean, that's the reason he focused upon them. He taught them because he loved them. They needed to know that. He spent time with them because he cared about them. He helped them because he loved them. He, he didn't focus on others because he had to. There was no no thing or no one that could make Jesus do anything. He was he was God in the flesh. No outside force could compel Jesus to do anything that he did not want to do. He wanted to be with the sinners. He wanted to help the needy. He wanted to teach those that needed to be taught. He he did what he did because he loved them. Genuinely cared about people and this motivated him to make helping them in whatever way was possible a priority in his life. Now, this is the example that we are to follow in our lives. And if we were to be honest, for most of us, it would require great changes for us to follow that example. But, I mean, we're a, we're a me-centered culture, aren't we? We're almost taught from the earliest ages to focus on ourselves and what we can get and what we can do and what's best for us. I mean, we, we teach our kids to share, but mostly that's so that they won't embarrass us out in public by acting crazy. Right? We, we just grow up with a very me-centered mentality and mindset to look at others, to focus on others, to care about others, to, to go out of our way to help them, well, that would be a drastic change for, for most of us. So how, would we, 
How would we do that? If we were going to follow this example of Jesus, what would we do? What are some things, some actions we could take so that we could follow Jesus' example? That's what we're going to look at today. Open your Bible to John chapter 5, page 813 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The title of the message this morning is The Example of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for all that you've given us and all that you've done. We thank you for your death on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the hope that we have because of that. We thank you for the example that you set for us. That that you did care about others and you cared about us. We are part of the others that you cared about and why you did what you did. And we, we want to be like you. We do. But the world pushes against us. Our own nature pushes against us being this way. We need your strength and your help in doing this. So we ask you today as we look at your example here in this passage of Scripture that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and challenge us. That he would help us to see how we could follow this example. That he would help us to understand that this is the example we're supposed to follow and that it would be something we would want to do. Change our hearts, change our desires, change everything within us so that we can be like you. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech so I could speak your words in your ways and not be a hindrance in any way. Work in every heart and every mind here and deal with us about what we need to be dealt with and change us the way we need to be changed. Save those who are far from you. Restore those that have slidden back. Encourage those that are discouraged. Strengthen those that have become weak. Revive those that may have become lukewarm in their relationship with you. We love you. We praise you. And we want your will to be done in our lives. Amen. You may be seated. So one day while the sick and the infirm were waiting around for the waters to be moved, Jesus came up and he did what no one else could do. He healed them. Of course, what Jesus did in this passage and on this day was a powerful demonstration of his ability to heal the body and the soul of things that the world cannot fix. But the thing I want us to focus on today is the example that he set here. But in this passage, Jesus set an example for his disciples. They went with him so they could see how he lived and what he did and they could learn to do what he did. And, and the thing that we've got to recognize is this, is that disciples of Jesus... Follow the example of Jesus. This is what we're meant to do. Jesus set an example for us to follow. In this passage, it shows us two ways. 
to follow the example of Jesus. Number one is to be aware of people's struggles. I try to imagine the scene that's going on in this first of this of chapter five. Right. Picture the people gathered here who are in desperate need, people that are sick right now. Sickness. This is basically sick unto death. Right? Don't see this as they have the flu or they have allergies. See this as they're not quite lepers, but what they have is probably going to kill them if something doesn't change. People who are blind, lame and paralyzed. Now, these were the hopeless of society. These were the people that medicine couldn't fix. These were the people that were just basically waiting around, waiting to die. And there were so many of them that the Bible describes them in verse 3 as being a great multitude. And they gathered in this one place with a hope. They were hoping for a miracle that would change their lives and fix their situation. And we're only told the story of one man. But I think it would be safe to conclude that, that most of them probably had similar stories. Most likely in this great multitude were people that had been there a great while. People that were trying to live in hope, wanting something to change so desperately. And this man had been there in his infirmity for 38 years. And I love what we see in verse 6, the first part. When Jesus saw him lying there, he, he knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. Jesus knew what was going on in this guy's life. He was aware of this guy's struggles. He was aware of the issue and the situation and the circumstances surrounding his life. You could say that Jesus was aware of people's struggles. As he went around, he was always aware of people's struggles. Now, you say, well... Jesus was God in the flesh. He was omniscient. He knew all things. True enough. I won't discount the fact that Jesus knew all things in his knowing of the struggles. However, we also cannot discount the fact that Jesus just cared about people. And that because he cared, he made it a point to know their struggles. He made it a point to be aware of what was going on in their life and to be aware of the struggles of those around him. And that is the example that we see here that we are supposed to follow. To go out of our way to try to be aware of the struggles that other people have. You know, it's easy for us to go through life and to close our eyes to the struggles of those around us. And I don't necessarily mean that someone tells us about a struggle they're going through and we ignore it and pretend like we didn't hear anything. But I mean more like we see the signs of a struggle and we turn our head away so that we don't have to get involved in it. We may be here of something that might be going on and, and rather than trying to see if they're okay, we just say, well, if they need us, they'll come to us. Not to just kind of stay out of it unless we have to get involved in it. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Right? I mean, we don't want to be nosy. I don't like people butting into my business, so I don't want to butt into people's other people's business. Right? I don't want somebody to just come and say, hey, I heard. Give me the scoop. So I don't want to be that guy either. At the same time, we're busy, aren't we? I mean, we're just uh, busy people. There's stuff that goes on, stuff that we do, stuff that we, we want to do. And then we, we have struggles of our own. 
And how can I possibly help someone else in their struggles when I'm struggling in an area myself? And all of these are, are probably real. I don't doubt that, that issues or that, the statements at all. The problem with them is that they are not legitimate excuses for a follower of Jesus Christ to not be aware of the struggles of others. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, to not just be concerned about yourself, but worry about others too. We are supposed to be aware of others, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also just people that we come across. I mean, as you go through this week, look around the people you encounter and realize Chances are many of them are going through all kinds of struggles. So I thought, what kind of struggles do people have? What are the issues that they wrestle with? And I think there's three that would be the broad categories that would, everything would fall into. People struggle with the cares of life. I mean, let's just be honest. Life can be hard. Sometimes life is hard because we make bad decisions. Now, chances are we have all made Bad decisions that made our lives more difficult than they needed to be. And at the same time, we know people that have made bad decisions. And because of that, their life is hard. They are struggling to make it through. And yes, it is all their fault. If you really wanted to be brutally honest about it. But sometimes life is hard because other people made a bad decision. And we get caught up in their consequences. I mean, unless you're a hermit and you have no relationships with other people and you work for yourself and you don't have to deal with other people in any way. People in your life can make bad decisions that will make your life more difficult. Can the parents give me an amen on that one? Children. Right? I remember as a kid when I... I remember being like 19, I joined the army and was leaving and mom and dad were all stressed out. And I was like, it's my life, you'll be okay with it. Now that I'm a grown up and I have kids of my own, I'm like, wow, what a moron. I knew nothing apparently of what it is. When you have kids, your lives are forever intertwined with theirs. And their bad decisions will always impact you. But it's not just your kids, even when they're grown, it can be that. It can be a co-worker, it can be your boss. It can be someone that works for you. It can be any number of people. They make bad decisions. And their bad decision brings dire consequences into your life. And you begin to struggle with the cares of life. Sometimes life is hard because we see the bad decisions of others. And we know the probable outcome of those decisions. I mean, don't you sometimes just see the path people begin to take? And because you're maybe more objective. You're not emotionally involved in this relationship or this decision. You look at it and where you see four or five years down the road is nothing but pain and trouble and hardship. I mean, if it's somebody you, you care about, I mean, that's rough. Right? Because people on that path, they rarely listen, do they? You, they? You're just trying to stifle them. You don't understand. You've never been in love like they were in love or whatever. But your heart just aches 
at the path that they're on and the probable outcome of that. Sometimes life is hard because we feel that we're just drifting in life. That we, we, we ask the question that made Rick Warren famous, what on earth am I here for? I mean, is this all that there is? I get up, I go to work, I eat dinner, I watch TV, I go to bed, I get up, I go to work, I come home, I eat dinner, I watch TV, I go to bed, and I do that until I die? Is that really all that there is? And there's, there's little that makes life more difficult or more of a struggle than thinking there's no purpose. That we just drift and that we're just here. Now all of these issues, they make life hard. And all of these issues cause people to struggle with the cares of life. And the longer that people struggle, the worse it gets. Right? Because if you've ever struggled in one of these cares of life, you know that the struggle doesn't just suddenly fix itself, does it? And that the struggle, if it's not resolved in some way, it gets heavier. The longer it goes on, the more it presses in on you. till you feel like you're about to be crushed. Just crushing the life out of you. And every day, we encounter people that are struggling with the cares of life. That don't see a way out. And feel as though they're about to collapse under the pressure of it all. People struggle with religion. I mean, Jesus, Jesus gave an invitation. And he said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, now those that have taken Jesus up on this offer found rest for their souls. They know the peace that comes from a right relationship with Jesus. And they know what it's like to have the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in their life. But, but many people, their, their experience with religion has been just the opposite. For many people, their experience with religion is a, a struggle that suffocates them. A weight that bears them down or something that just sucks the overall joy and pleasure out of life. Now, there's lots of reasons for this. Some who experience this are involved in, in one of the many false religions common in our world. And Jesus doesn't fulfill his promises when we trust in another Jesus. If we trust in a religion that's not about Jesus, there's, well, there is no taking of the yoke. There is no rest for our souls. Others are, have been sold on a version of Christianity that's not consistent with Scripture. They've been told promises, whoa, that Jesus didn't make. And they're expecting that if they just do enough and believe enough and pray enough, that suddenly everything is going to be fixed, and yet it doesn't seem to be happening. And it weighs them down. And others have been given a version of Christianity that is so filled with rules and regulations and things that you have to do to appease the ever-present wrath of God that they live in fear, taking one wrong step and God casting them joyfully into hell. And there are just some that have never taken Jesus' yoke upon them. They wanted enough of Jesus to get out of hell. 
They really didn't want a Savior and a Lord. They want a, a Jesus who will answer their selfish prayers. Give them stuff in their life. Run interference to make their life easy, but never make any demands of His own. Never call us to holiness. Never tell us to get out of sin. Never call on us to sacrifice and deny ourselves. They just want a Jesus that's all about them. And sadly, that Jesus does not exist. And so, they struggle. These sorts of religious ideas that are far from Christianity that's found in the Bible... They cause people to live the struggle with religion. And the longer they go and try to make it better, the worse it gets. Many times they try to put on a good front and act like all is okay. And, and as far as the public testimony goes of what people see, they're too blessed to be stressed. But in the darkness of the night, it is a miserable existence that they're living in. And every day, we encounter people that struggle with religion. And then people struggle with slavery to sin. Every day, people destroy their lives through sin. It could be drunkenness, it could be drugs, it could be adultery, it could be any number of other sinful choices. The reason that sin destroys is because sin always overpromises and always underdelivers. Sin promises excitement, pleasure, fulfillment, and freedom. And sin, it does seem to deliver a measure of those things. Right? Because if there was an excitement and pleasure and some fulfillment, we wouldn't do it, would we? There's something about it that pulls us. There's something about it that we do like. The problem is that the Bible says it is the, the fleeting pleasures of sin, the passing pleasures of sin. Because when sin goes away, the consequences come. The pleasure fades and the reality sets in. And worst of all, sin does not deliver freedom. It delivers the opposite. Sin Brings slavery. And we don't have time this morning to look at a bunch of verses that show this, but I'm going to give you three to take home and look at. Proverbs 5, 22 and 23 talks about sin being like cords that hold us tight. And the picture is that the more that we struggle, the more that it ensnares us until eventually we're destroyed by our sin. That's the picture. That's what we see all throughout is that sin ensnares us. It draws us deeper and deeper into its, into its net. And then when it's had its way, it destroys us. You say, oh, come on now. Sin doesn't ensnare us and hold us tighter and bring us in until it destroys us. But think about what we've seen in Bible. Think about King Saul. King Saul is my perfect example of a guy who was ensnared by sin and taken further than he ever thought he would go. If you've read through the account of Saul's life, you know that Saul was chosen by God to be the first king over Israel. 
He was a strong warrior. He was at the start of his life, at the start of his career, a a good man, devoted to God, wanting to serve God. But over time, Saul began to drift and Saul began to let certain things go until there came a point in his life where Saul had all the priests of God murdered and their wives and their children. Now, if you were to have said to Saul, Saul, today you're becoming king. In just a few years time, you will murder the priests of your God and you will murder their wives and you will murder their children. Saul would have told you you were smoking crack. He would have told you there was no way he would do something like that. And yet that's exactly what Saul did. Because sin drew him in and it kept him there until sin is what destroyed Saul's life. And that's exactly what it'll do to you. And that's exactly what it'll do to me. John 8.34, Jesus says, He who sins is a slave to sin. Romans 6 and 16, the Apostle Paul writes that you are a slave to whatever you submit yourself to of righteousness unto life or of sin unto death. See, you you serve something. Anyway, we all do. We serve God or we serve self and sin. These are the choices. There's no in-between. So when we sin, we're serving self and sin. And we're slaves to sin. And we are submitting ourselves to that slavery that will eventually destroy us. How many people struggle with slavery to sin? They want to get out from underneath the burden of sin. They can see the path that they're on. They can see the where it's taking them. And they've experienced some negative consequences for that. But they don't know how to get out of it. And the reality is they can't. You see, we have no natural means to get out from underneath slavery to sin on our own. We can turn over a new leaf, but it doesn't fix anything. We can dress differently, but that doesn't change the heart. We can break off relationships, but if if other things don't change, it won't fix the problem. People that are slaves to sin, many want out, but they don't know how. They don't know the one that gives real freedom. They don't know Jesus. And they desperately, desperately want to know how to get out from underneath the slavery. It is weighing them down. And it is about to crush them. But they don't know what to do. And those who struggle with these issues and never find relief, they go from place to place looking for just a little hope. Think about the people you know who just bounce around from one thing or another. They change jobs every few months, hoping that maybe this job will provide them the peace, heart, mind, the rest for their souls they want. They go from relationship to relationship, hoping that maybe this one will will fix that uneasiness of their souls, will give them the peace and the rest that they need. Some will go from church to church, hoping that maybe this church will tell me the seven keys and the secrets to a fulfilled life that will free me from these struggles. 
Some go from one self-help philosophy to another, buying the latest and greatest on the bookshelves. This is the key. This will change my life. This will fix everything. And as a general rule, there is some measure of relief at the beginning. I mean, anytime you change your circumstances, it always kind of fixes some things, right? Stress from the old is gone. The new hasn't started yet. You don't have any of the baggage that you had before. Now that's all begun. New, you get the chance to start fresh. But in the end, all you do is take your baggage with you. You just take a little while to unload it. Right? Because the problem isn't in your relationship. The problem isn't in your church. And the problem isn't in the self-help philosophy that you abide by. The problem is within your heart. And you just carry that with you from place to place. And everywhere you go, there you are. And then your struggles will start anew. And so it's just a constant struggle of life. In my experience, those who struggle in this way never find the relief that Jesus offers and continue to bounce around from place to place. They are some of the unhappiest people I've ever known in my life. They are unstable, they are unreliable. And deep down, they are terribly miserable. And every day, we encounter these people. And every day, we see those folks. And Jesus, he, he saw them too. He made a point to be aware of those struggles because He cared about them. And, and for those of us that would say, I am a... I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. His example is to be our example. We also try to be aware of people's struggles. It may mean we have to lay aside some judgmental attitudes. It may mean we have to get involved in the messiness of life. But it, it's what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus isn't coming to church and singing songs. Following Jesus is it is life changing. It changes everything about who we are, the way that we act, what we do. If we're going to follow the example of Jesus, we have to be able to look past the struggles that people have. Look past the issues that got them there and the decisions they made and see that they are burdened to the point of despair many times. Be aware. They are struggling almost to death. And then, secondly, we have to look for ways to help. See, Jesus... Was not only aware the guy was struggling, he, he got involved. He went to him and he asked him, Do you want to be made well? Man, he didn't have any, any way to be made well. There was nothing he could do to fix the problem. He couldn't get into the water when it was stirred. He 
apparently was crippled and had no way to make it there. And so Jesus, he did what Jesus did. He fixed it. He said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the, the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Instantly the man was healed when Jesus spoke and, and commanded it to be done. And, and I'd like to tell you, go heal. Cast out demons. Raise the dead. Right? We're not going to do that. That was Jesus. Right? We're not going to be given those sorts of abilities, powers, most likely. But just because I can't heal the lame, does that mean I can't help in some way? No, of course not. See, the, the point... And following Jesus' example here isn't go and do miracles. It's go and do what you can. Jesus, what he could do was heal the guy. But what can we do to help those that are struggling? I mean, let me ask you this. Why do you think God shows us struggles that people have? Why is it that sometimes we're made aware of something like that? Not because we're seeking it, but just somehow we see a sign that something's not right in their life and we kind of begin to work it out. Why does God reveal these sorts of things to us? Isn't it possible that God reveals these things to us so that we will begin to look for ways to help in those needs. Isn't it, in fact, probable that the reason God makes us aware of other people's struggles is because He wants us to get actively involved in doing what we can to help them? To look for ways to help. And many times we know Something needs to be done. And if somebody else would start, we would, we would join and we would help. But we're just not willing to take the initiative ourselves. Now, obviously, there are times where we don't really see or know about needs. And there's nothing we can do about that. But there are also times where we see the need. And we know the struggle. And we say... If someone else would start, I'd help. But we say that because we don't want to be involved. We don't want to get involved in the messiness of someone else's life. I think honesty would compel us all to say that that has happened at times. And what I want us to do tonight is to look at a passage tonight today, I haven't preached that long yet, look today at a passage that, that I think is scary. I think it's challenging on what happens when we see the struggles and we ignore it. Turn to Matthew 25 and verse 31, page 756. Matthew 25 is an interesting passage. In it, Jesus tells several stories to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. 
Starting in verse 31, where we're going to be looking at, Jesus begins to explain something about final judgment, when there will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. Sheep will go to the kingdom of God, goats will go to hell. Basically, of course, what he's saying is he's talking about those who are redeemed and those who are not. I want to read it to you and point out some things. Verse 32. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Never mind. If you're in Matthew 24 and looking at it, it won't make any sense and it's going to scare you. Okay, Matthew 25, 31. The Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, and will sit on the throne of His glory. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goat. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, and the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? The king will say, the King will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of these, the least, one of these, least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, there are several important things to notice. One, it's obviously the who. When we see people in struggle, that are struggling, we begin to look for ways to help. Who are we really helping? Well, Jesus says in verses 35 through 37, or verse 35 through 40, that it was Him. When did we see you? Well, as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Right? And so every time we see somebody struggling and we look for a way to help and we do what we can to help, that's a, that's a service to Jesus. That is ministering to Jesus. That is serving the Lord. But a part of the who is notice who we ignore when we look away from those needs. And again, we see that in verses 44 and 45, they will answer and say, Lord, when do we see you hunger or thirst or stranger or naked or prison and did not menace to you? And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. I mean, that's, that's a pretty rough statement. So think about that. When we see someone struggling and we turn a blind eye to it, in the kingdom of heaven, the way they judge things, it's as though we've ignored Jesus. Now that's, that's pretty convicting, isn't it? It is for me. Now because if I really saw it as serving Jesus or ignoring Jesus, I probably wouldn't look away. And we say, well, Jesus wouldn't have made the mistakes these people made, so it's not the same. Well, okay, 
True, Jesus wouldn't make a mistake, but he did mention people in prison. As a general rule, people go to prison for mistakes they've made, things they've done. So in, in the courts of heaven, the fact that it's their fault really doesn't matter. It's the fact that they were struggling with a need and a burden, and we just ignored it. And that I find terribly, terribly convicting. And it gets even tougher as you look at this. Because we also not only have to watch the the who, but the what. In this passage, what determines whether one goes to everlasting punishment or to eternal life? Is it church attendance? Not mentioned. Is it baptism? Not mentioned. It's none of the things that we would normally say. It's what we did when we saw the person struggling. Now, let's be clear. Jesus isn't teaching a works-based salvation. We're not saved by helping. We always have to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. But the Bible teaches very clearly that the salvation that comes through faith and grace changes our lives. And in multiple times, Jesus tells stories of judgment and says, basically, one can tell if you're saved by the life that you live. That's why, like in Matthew 15, Jesus says, by your mouth you'll be condemned and by your mouth you'll be justified. Why? Why? Because the, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. And if what comes out of our mouth is wicked and unclean, then our hearts are wicked and unclean and we're never, not really saved. In a similar way, helping the needy and following the example of Jesus is such a part of the kingdom of God that one can determine if someone is a part of the kingdom of God by seeing the reaction to those who are struggling and how they help the needy. The point that Jesus is making is that those those who are saved, whose hearts He has changed, who are filled with His Spirit, they will not ignore the struggles of others. They will be aware of those struggles. They will do what they can to help. And the main reason I want us to look at this is because I want you to notice the personal nature of it all. At this time, it is going to be me and Jesus. And it's going to be you and Jesus. And I'm not going to be able to say to Jesus, yes, I saw that they were struggling, but no one else was willing to help. And he's not going to say, oh, well, okay. Never mind, I didn't know that. Go on. And you're not going to be able to say to him, well, if somebody else had started, I would have helped. Because what he'll say to us in that time is, well, why didn't you just do something? Why didn't you take the initiative? Why didn't you look for a way to help? Why didn't you do something to help them in that struggle? It is just one-on-one with Jesus. And on that day, it's not going to matter. When I'm standing before Jesus, it won't matter 
what you thought or what you said. It'll matter what I did. And when you stand before Jesus, it won't matter what I said or what I did or how I felt. It will matter what you did. We are each individually accountable to Jesus. And a part of being a believer in Jesus is following the example of Jesus. And to follow His example, it means we have to die to a self-centered, selfish way of life. This doesn't mean we don't care about ourselves or anything crazy like that. But it means that each of us has to say, I am not the only person in the world. The sun, moon, and stars do not revolve around me. I am not the point of it all. Others matter every bit as much as I do. It is saying, it may make me uncomfortable to find a way to help, but I need to do it anyway. It may inconvenience me to help, but I need to do it anyway. I may have to have an uncomfortable conversation, but I need to do it anyway. Faith in Jesus does not just change our eternal destination. It changes us in the here and the now. And not just in leading us out of sin, but leading us into doing righteous, helpful, good things. If we are going to follow the example of Jesus, we've got to be aware of other people's struggles. And then we have got to look for ways that we can help. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.